Well, last week, if you were with us, you might remember that we looked at this long uh, and profound conversation that Jesus has with a, li- with a religious leader, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Well, today we turn the page to John chapter 4 and we look at another long and profound conversation that Jesus has this time uh, with a Samaritan woman. Uh, a woman at the well, and whereas in, bo- in, both, uh, in both of these conversations, Jesus draws a metaphor to talk about the soul and the soul's need for God. In John chapter 3, it was, it was about spiritual rebirth, and in John chapter 4, it is about living water. And we'll get to the text in, in just a minute, but there are some striking contrasts between these two conversations. Whereas in John 3, Jesus talks with a man. In John chapter 4, he talks with a woman. In John 3, it took place in the city, in Jerusalem. In John chapter 4, it takes place in the countryside, in a town called Sychar. In John 3, Jesus' conversation was with an insider, a Pharisee. In John 4, it's with an outsider, a Samaritan. In John 3, he's talking with a religious exemplar. In John 4, he's talking with a religious disgrace, at least according to the Jewish people. In John chapter 3, he's speaking with a theological orthodox. In John 4, he's talking with a theological heretic. In John chapter 3, Jesus is the responder, and in John chapter 4, Jesus initiates the conversation. In John chapter 3, the man has a name, Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, the woman is unnamed. She's anonymous. And here's what Eugene Peterson says about this. He says that in John 3, the human's reputation is at risk. Will a religious leader recognize Jesus as Son of God? In John chapter 4, God's reputation is at risk. The question, does God treat all humans with dignity and without partiality? So let's take a look at the text. It's um, a rather long reading. Um, And so it's John chapter 4, verses 3 through 26. I invite you to just take a deep breath, kind of settle into your, your seat where you are, and you can either listen or follow along. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had been given, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask of me a a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not associate, share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? 
Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You, will wor- you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he the one who is speaking with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Lord, we come to place our lives once again here in front of your open word. We pray that you will send your spirit to be our teacher who will guide us into the truth of the very life of God in Jesus Christ. Speak to us in the deep and protected corners of our hearts. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it was the summer of 2008 when my family and I uh, set off for a 10-day long road trip from Orange County to Princeton, New Jersey, where I would study and where we would live. Uh, for a period of time. Princeton, New Jersey, as you know, is where uh, Jamie White and the White family are located right now, studying in the same place where, where we were back in 08. Uh, Hannah and Abby, our two daughters, they were toddlers at the time. Lucas was not yet born. Um, so we shipped a few boxes, maybe three or four boxes, and then we fit whatever else we could in our little outback, and we drove across the country, the four of us, on a well-planned 10-day-long road trip. There's our old Subaru Outback um, at the beginning of the trip. Um, Some of the greatest memories of our marriage, Devin and I, were formed on this little excursion, on this 10-day journey. And I know that, uh, that there really is no better metaphor for understanding life than to think of life as a journey or a kind of a road trip. I understand it's a metaphor that's a little bit overplayed, but it's also uh, overplayed because it just keeps working. The experiences that we have along life's way make us into who we are. And there are seasons and there are stops along life's journey that are met with extraordinary beauty and wonder. 
when we were on this road trip for us, that was actually when we made our way through southern Utah. And we went through Bryce and Zion and the beautiful, magnificent red and pink sandstone cliffs go sky, skying up into the sky. And uh, we, we had a picnic under the warm Utah sun in August. And we had homemade jelly. And we sat on this uh, quilt that was made out of Devin's great uncle's polyester pants from the 70s. Um, and uh, it was just a magnificent moment. You know, these are the seasons when life is, is wonderful, when the surprises of grace are obvious, right? You meet the one you love. You joyfully bring a new child into the world. You attend your son's college graduation. You help your daughter pick out her wedding dress. You land the job you've been wanting. You retire from the job you've been hating. Things are going really well for you in general uh, in this season of your, of your life. Well, we continued our journey through the Rockies and we stayed with uh, some relatives for a couple of days outside of Denver and then we headed east. And, um, and it was, things were beautiful, but then we started to get a little tired and, and then we hit Julesburg, uh, Colorado, which is right on the border of eastern Colorado and Nebraska. And, and that's where the Subaru broke down. Uh, an axle boot broke. I didn't even know what an axle boot was, but it was like the thing and the thing under the thing broke down and we're stuck for two days. That's about as much as I knew. And so we stayed in this kind of odd town um, in, a, in an unpleasant Motel 6. I don't believe in purgatory, but if I did, Julesburg would be a nice image of that for me, I suppose. But there it is in kind of in the middle of nowhere, broken down, stuck, trying to make the best of an unpleasant situation in an unpleasant town, staying the night at an unpleasant Motel 6. These are the seasons of life when life takes a turn that you didn't plan. You lose your job or you lose the one you love. You lose your health. Things don't go according to the way you planned. You become aware of your disappointments, even your failures in life. Well, it's, it's in this season of life, in kind of in a broken down in Julesburg, that we encounter this Samaritan woman who meets Jesus and has this conversation about living water. Jesus and his entourage, they're making their way from the south in Jerusalem back up north to Galilee. And normally they would go kind of the longer, more comfortable route around so, so as to avoid Samaria. But for some reason, they take a detour through Samaria. Uh, going through Samaria is the most direct and the least comfortable route for Jewish people. Uh, John says he had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. But the people who first read this story knew that that wasn't true. You didn't have to go through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee. In fact, you would only go there if you really wanted to, which no good Jew ever does. Samaria was a despicable place to the Jewish people. Samaritans were regarded as inferior, uh, racially inferior, religiously inferior, socially inferior, and for something like 700 years, the Jews and the Samaritans would argue and generally hate each other 
Um, only as members of the same family can actually kind of hate each other and argue for so long. You think about like the, the, the Shi'i and the Sunni Muslims, or you think about how um, the verbal and, and uh, verbal violence and hostility even between Christians, particularly around the Protestant Reformation, but even now politically, right? Um, when you're close to one another and you're related to one another, you can fight a lot more with a lot more intensity um, than when you're not. Anyway, so that was kind of the case between the Jews and the Samaritans. Originally, it had to do with a disagreement about whose holy temple was the real temple and whose city was the real city, but then it just kind of uh, disintegrated into a particularly nasty racial, uh, racial prejudice that was fueled by religion. So the entourage, Jesus' entourage, which was probably his disciples, um, maybe some women, um, maybe some of, uh, other friends, they're over the border in Samaria and they're not happy about it. It's high noon, which means it's very hot. They're hungry and thirsty. And so they decide to leave to go get some food in another town. We're going to go have lunch, Jesus. We're going to go into over here. You, you can enjoy yourself in Samaria. And so they leave Jesus there. And uh, John tells us that he was tired from the journey, and he takes his seat at this historic well. What does it mean to say that Jesus was tired from the journey? Well, for one thing, it means that Jesus gets tired, right? Okay, we, we understand that. Jesus was a human being. There's no question in the first century that Jesus would get tired just like every other human being would get tired. But John's proclamation is that Jesus is the incarnation of God, and he's announcing the presence of God in Jesus. And so when John says that he is tired from the journey, he's also saying that this is the one who takes on our deep weariness. Come to me, all you who are carrying heavy burdens, and lay them upon me. Lay your yoke upon me and take my yoke. I will give you rest. He is the one who is, takes upon our weariness upon himself. He knows what it's like to be tired from the journey of life. He knows what it's like to be tired from the pandemic, from tiptoeing around forgetting your mask. Oh no. He's, he knows what it's like to be tired of not getting to see your grandkids or your kids. Uh, he knows what it's, what it's like to be tired of having to watch church on a, on a screen. He knows what it's like to be tired for the search for contentment, which is every one of our search, tired as he was from the journey. So he takes this seat at this well, and a Samaritan woman comes up and approaches the well to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, there are some things that are going on here that are not readily apparent. First, women are the ones who do the drawing and carrying of water, and they do it in the cool of morning or in the cool of evening and never alone. But this woman has gone in the heat of day and by herself. She's not drawing water with the other women from the village. Second, Jews do not ask Samaritans for a drink. A Jew would rather die of thirst than to share a Samaritan cup. 
And that might make you think back to a time when in this country, uh, white people did not want to share a drinking fountain with black people. It's kind of like that. Uh, one, one thinks of this. Third, a Jewish male, particularly a rabbi, does not speak with a single woman publicly who is not his wife ever, period, full stop. Here Jesus is breaking all these rules and customs. I've been to this well, Jacob's well. I was there in 1999 um, when I was on a, a study in the Middle East. And um, this well, it is, as she says, a deep well. The depth of the well has changed over the years. It's probably a couple hundred feet deep. Uh, you walk down this kind of spiral staircase down into this kind of cave-like basement-type room with Greek Orthodox decor. Of course, there's a Greek Orthodox church all around this, and there's this limestone well there. And uh, they say that this was Jacob's well, and that the location of this well was fed by underground springs, and the water there was fresh and cool that was going into this well, and that was a delicacy to have a kind of fresh flowing water in that particular region in this time. Most often they would have to resort to, live, to drinking still water from a muddy cistern, and so they would call flowing spring water in Jacob's well that they could find, they would call that kind of water what? Living water. Right? And so Jesus, picking up on this and speaking metaphorically at this point, says to the woman, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for living water. Think back to Psalm 42. But she's not getting it. She's not getting it. Yes, there's living water at the bottom of the well, but it's very deep, and you don't have a bucket. Right. But he keeps trying you don't understand. I'm offering you a different kind of living water, the kind that will not make you thirst anymore, the kind that wells up to eternal life. But she still doesn't get it. And so at this point, Jesus takes a different approach. He does what only Jesus can do, not what I can do, not what you can do, but what only Jesus can do because he knows this woman, that's the point of this text, uh, better than anyone else knows her, better than her mother knows her, better than her daughter knows her, better than she even knows herself. He knows this woman, so he can do what only he can do, which is to poke directly at her heart and her disappointments in life. And so he says to her, go call your husband and come back, knowing about her five husbands and the unmarried man that she is now living with. Again, this is the one who takes on our weariness. And this is the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows everything about us. Of course, commentators have had kind of a field day with this five husbands bit. Um, there's a bunch of different interpretations about it. The traditional interpretation is that, the, is that this woman is simply bad at relationships, right? She's burned through five husbands, five divorces perhaps, and now she's giving cohabitation a try with the sixth. That's why she comes to the well in the heat of day. She's been ostracized from her community because giving up on marriage in this way, in this kind of community, is also to give up on religion and an acceptance within the religious community. She's been disgraced. 
More recent first century scholars suggest that Samaritans practice Leverite marriage, which means that if the husband dies, the next of kin, usually the brother, would be responsible for taking care of the woman and marrying her. And then if the second husband dies, then the third would then the third kinsman would have to marry her, and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and now the sixth, out of fear of his life, is dragging his feet. Other commentators suggest that this whole thing is kind of like an allegory, and the five husbands represent the five great religions, and the Samaritans, like many of us, can fall into uh, syncretism in our worship, and so there's all sorts of idols that need to be smashed, um, and so that's another interpretation. Another commentator even suggested that when this woman said to Jesus, I have no husband, that this was something like a pickup line. And it sort of makes you wonder if sometimes maybe our church's scholars have a whole lot of time on their hands. <laughs> but of course, if we just stick to the text, if we just stick to the text, the point is that Jesus knows this woman. He knows all about her. This woman who doesn't even have a name in the text. John doesn't know her name. The disciples don't know her name. We don't know her name. It's as if her identity has been taken over by her thirst, by her circumstance, by her disappointments in life. But Jesus knows her. He knows that she's broken down and thirsty in life, that life hasn't turned out the way that she planned. And he meets her where she's at because he knows that she's a child of God and not just a disgraced Samaritan. Whatever you want to say about this unnamed woman, nobody ever plans to have five husbands. Surely every time she stood there at the altar, she said, this is going to be the one that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And we might not have had five spouses, but maybe we've thought to ourselves from time to time, if only I had this car, if only I got this new house, if I only I lived in this city, if only my grandkids lived here in Salt Lake City, if, 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 if only I had the job that I had wanting, if only my spouse would do this and not do that, if, uh, man, if only I could go to that school, then, then, then I would be satisfied. Then I wouldn't be thirsty anymore, right? He knows that woman's search, and he knows ours too. He knows it because he gave it to us. As Psalm 42 says, our, 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 as the deer pants for streams of flowing water, so our souls thirst for God. For the living God, when can I go and behold the face of God? We are thirsty for the living God. This is why Augustine wrote, our hearts are restless until they finally rest in God. So Jesus pricks at her life, gets really personal talks about her disappointments, draws them out, hoping to bring this awareness of her pain and her soul's search. And how does she respond? Well, she changes the subject. She begins to have a theological conversation. Ah, I see that you're a prophet, right? Which is a recognition that that this person has recognized something in her that needs correction. That's what a prophet does. 
I see that you're a prophet. Ah, did you know that we worship on this mountain and you guys worship on that mountain over there? Which one is it? Is it here or is it in Jerusalem? I kind of imagine Jesus saying, uh, hello, we're talking about your five husbands here and you're wondering if we should use, if your church should be using an organ or a guitar. It's like the ancient worship wars here, you know? This mountain or that mountain? Contemporary or traditional? Because it's always easier to talk about something over there than it is to talk about what's going on in here. What a distraction. This is not God's concern. God's not concerned about this. What is God's concern? God's concern, as Jesus says, is that we worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not about a mountain. It's not about a style of music. Jesus says the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And here we see Trinitarian reference again. What is spirit and truth? Well, spirit is not just kind of like feeling spiritual, like, oh, I'm just, oh, I'm just feeling so spiritual. I just feel so spiritual today. I went outside and I just, it was, I just felt so spiritual. No, spirit in this text is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who indwells in us, who leads us into all truth, who comforts us and who guides us. Well, what is the truth? Well, the truth isn't an abstract idea. It's not ideological correctness. It's not doctrine. The truth in John is a person. Jesus says, I am the truth and the way and the life. You want to know what truth is? It's not an idea that's separate from reality. It's an embodied, enfleshed God in the flesh. And so spirit and truth is the spirit of God who dwells in us and the truth of God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. The early church father, Irenaeus, said that the spirit and truth are like the two arms that the father of the prodigal son uses when he runs down the road to grab his lost son with spirit and truth and bind him into his own embrace. And that's what God does with us. God reaches down to us with spirit and truth and binds us close to his own heart. And it is in that embrace that we find living water for our souls. We belong to him. There is no one who knows us more fully and more completely than Jesus Christ. He knows all about us. He knows our fears. He knows our joys, our gifts. He knows our shame. He knows the disappointments we have. He knows the kindness of our hearts. He knows our desire to do the right thing. He knows our failures and our wounds. And like the woman at the well, he meets us right where we are in life. And he offers us the greatest possible gift, his very life and his unconditional love. The heart of our faith is a wondrous love that did not condemn a Samaritan woman for immorality, did not exclude her because of her religion or her race or her gender, but graciously accepted her and loved her back to her humanity, her God-given status as a child of God. And it's a love that's offered to each of us too, to you no matter who you are or how excluded you've been, it's a wondrous love that comes to you to affirm who you are and to remind you 
and to remind you that whatever words others may have ever used to describe you, to define you, whatever words and ideas you have come to use to describe yourself, the one permanent, unchanging, indestructible thing is that you are a child of God. And God's own Son came to make sure that you would never forget that. Jim Garner wrote, and I close with this, to receive this living water, we don't have to drag our buckets to the well and drag them home. We just have to ask for it, and it rains all over us. Gracious God, we, we seek to, to meet your Son and our Savior, Jesus, at the well. The well of our own hearts. The well of our own disappointments. The well of our own false identities. The well of labels that have been said to us that are not true. And we pray that you will restore us again. We do seek to worship you in spirit and truth. We pray that your spirit will indwell with us and lead us into the life of Jesus, who is the truth, that we might be who you called us to be. We thank you for accepting us, for loving us, for taking away our shame, and for quenching our thirst whenever we come to drink from Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.